Well, we've come out on the other side of the flood, and now we've reached that place where God is going to impart this new world order to this burgeoning new creation, though it is the old creation that's been destroyed by water by this cataclysm, and God now is going to speak uh, these next 17 verses as we begin chapter 9 are the voice of God. They're a recordation of what God himself said uh, to Noah and to his family. And so if you'll turn with me tonight to Genesis chapter 9, we'll take a look at these first seven verses and God's new order. He institutes really the first uh, human government up to this point in time. You may remember before the flood, and we certainly saw this in the life of Cain and Abel, there were really no laws. Man was a free moral agent created by God that way, uh, able to do anything that he pleased, anything that he wanted to do, and without penalty uh, beyond, any, beyond anything that would be what God might require or God might do, but there was no human government uh, during those pre-flood days. And so God now, uh, after the flood, is going to institute uh, the basic human government And he's going to give a couple of criteria tonight. We'll look at the beginnings of that in the first seven verses. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the power and the majesty, the wonder of your word. And Lord, these handful of words that you spoke to Noah originally passed down orally and then written down, God, uh, thousands of years, they still ring true. And so Lord, we pray that you administer to us that uh, you'd speak to us, Lord, that we would hear your voice. Lord, that it wouldn't be something we look back and say, well, Noah heard. We want to hear your voice tonight. So please speak to us as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 9. And so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now there's an unfortunate Uh, title heading, and I want to again remind you, if you have a King James Bible, translation is great. There are a few translational errors that have been corrected in the King James, in the New King James, and so it, in a sense, is a little more accurate, at least as far as an English translation is concerned. But I want to remind you that the title headings in your Bible are not Scripture themselves. And so people often look at the title headings in their Bible almost as if they themselves were the word of God, and they are not. They were put in there by the the original uh, interpreters, especially with regard to the English versions of the Bible, to try and help us understand. In essence, they're like a mini-commentary. And so in a King James Bible, it actually says that God is now going to refill, or it seems like he's going to do something Uh, that would replenish the earth. In other words, he's wiped out everything and he's going to kind of start over or he's going to use some new process to get that done. And unfortunately, this is is where Charles Darwin, uh, this is where uh, Lyle and many of those who came on after him that kind of looked at this and said, well, this would be where those millions of years would be stuck. And so it is here Uh, that in essence the gap theory becomes uh, a reality, though the actual timing would be between Genesis chapter and Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, 
but it's really here that we see that God's going to do something that might allow for him to use, say, evolution. And so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear, of, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and all that moves on the earth, and all of the fish of the sea. So if you've ever wondered why you have a tough time catching fish, or have a tough time catching animals, or have a tough time catching birds, God institutes after the flood, you remember prior to the flood, mankind and animal life existed on the face of the earth, and they were in essence... Uh, For all intents and purposes, you could say that they were able to communicate, at least at some level, one with another, and there was no fear between animal life and mankind. And so mankind and animal life existed, in essence, in in an environment to where there was no fear, there was no dread, people didn't fear one another, and animals did not fear man. That is now going to change. And I believe there are some reasons for it, and we'll, we'll look at those in a few moments. For they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Uh, And for those that prefer to eat veggies, this is where God first institutes uh, the ability for us to also eat meat. And so it it begins here. Uh, And while I'm not making a categorical statement one way or another, if you're here and you're a vegan or you're a vegetarian, God bless you. Uh, If you're here and you like to eat uh, steak, that's fine as well. Uh, God allows for both of those things here. But I believe there's actually a reason uh, why at this point in time, after the flood, God has actually instituted at least the ability, not the command to, but the ability to be able to uh, eat the animals as well. For everything uh, will be food to you. For I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. And so he makes a distinction here between animal life and plant life, and he says, I gave you plant life before. You were able to eat that, and now I'm going to allow you to actually eat animals. There's a couple of things that are missing here that I think is important for us to understand from the get-go. God does not command that you have to go out and kill everything and eat everything. He's not saying that absolutely everything you should go out and indiscriminately destroy animal life. So he's not talking about cruelty. He's not talking about taking advantage of the creation. He's simply giving a permission to be able to eat animal protein. Um, He's not saying, however, that every single animal needs to be treated as though it has no value. And in fact, he's going to clarify that in what he talks about next, which is the value of that animal's blood to propitiate or pay for man's sin. It's going to take the shed blood of an animal to do that. He's going to codify all these things in the book of Exodus, but we're going to get a glimpse of what God's going to do here. So God values highly all animal life. He gave animals a consciousness. He has given them the the ability to feel. They can express emotion, but there's one thing they don't have that mankind does have, and that is a spirit. In other words, they are not eternal. And that is the difference chiefly between man and animal life. And so when people talk about the difference, God breathed a very special breath into mankind that was a spirit, and it's in his image that man is made. Animal life is not made in the image of man. It simply has consciousness, it has emotion, has feeling, can even express our dogs. My dog can look right through me. 
I, I look at Lonnie and she's like, okay, pet me now. I will do anything you ask. So there's some emotion there. But she does not have an eternal soul. She's an animal. You shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is its blood. So he's going to make very careful notation of a very specific thing here. That it is the blood that contains the life. We now know this medically as well. For surely your life blood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, from the hand of man. And so he's going to now, in essence, institute uh, the principle which will be codified again in the book of Exodus that if a life is shed, then another life is supposed to be forfeited for it if that is done as a criminal act. And so God's kind of giving a little glimpse here of what he intends to do when he's actually going to put these things into the, the law as we know it. That's why when you read your Bible... It actually does not say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. There's a differentiation between those two words. Murdering is taking a a person's life or someone else's life specifically uh, for the purpose of your own selfish desires. Killing might be in the instance of defending someone else. Uh, maybe, Maybe there's an innocent child that's about to be murdered and you step in and take that person's life. God does not consider that sin. God considers the taking of an innocent life to be sin. And so saving the life of the child would be perfectly acceptable, whereas taking the life of the child would not. For surely I will require the lifeblood and demand a reckoning of it. From the hand of the beast I will require it from the hand of man. And from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. And so now he's going to put this same condition upon all of humankind. And whether you like it or not, and I've had a lot of debates with Bible college students about the institution of the death penalty. God instituted the death penalty. He did so right here. He puts it in place for us because it is the chief way that mankind is restrained from doing evil. Because at the end of the day, all that man has, he will forfeit to save his own life. And so life is precious not only to God, it's also precious to man. And so God basically puts into into place a plan whereby man is supposed to be fearful of God first so that he will not do something that God tells him is wrong. And here he's saying, look, if you take a man's life, I will require your life in its place. That is, in essence, capital punishment. Now, he does not say to use it indiscriminately, nor does he, again, and I think it's important what's missing here, does he demand that in every, every single instance that we resort to taking that person's life. He just simply said, this is the penalty that you might have to face if you do these things. And so he uses, in essence, a, a tactic that we would call fear. He, he's saying, look, if you really want to know exactly how dangerous this is, go ahead and play with it, but it could cost your life. So he's, he's speaking into the heart of every man's brother. I will require the life of the man. It is on all of you as humankind. For whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood it shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And so he recounts what he said in chapter 1 and verse 27, that mankind alone was made in the image of God. But as for you, be fruitful 
and multiply and bring forth abundantly on the earth and multiply it. So he's talking again about being a steward or an overseer. And so what can we pull out of this chapter tonight? Basic fear of man is now going to fall upon the animal kingdom. It's the reason that animals to this day uh, run from man. Amen? If you're a fisherman, say amen. If, if you've ever been out, you know, I stand on the side of the tree, stream and I cast men. The moment the trout see me, they are out of here. The same is true for all animal life everywhere that you go. That's the reason little boys have to chase lizards. The lizards don't run to them. They have to actually run after them and hunt them down. Animals have an instinctive fear of mankind, and God placed it there because now they are going to be a food source for a man. And so they have a fear. There's a secondary thing. Remember that animals, because they're not created in man's image, because they do not have an eternal spirit, are going to multiply somewhat faster than mankind. Uh, the other thing that we look at is the gestational period of animals versus mankind. And apart from the very large animals, equine species and those types of things, or elephants, pachyderms, uh, most animals uh, end up having very large litters, and they do so very rapidly. So animals are going to multiply in the face of the earth much faster than human beings. And so God, in essence, in, instills a fear so that these animals will actually spread out a little bit, not stay in one place, and what we would call overgraze Samaria. If you just allowed rabbits to indiscriminately expand in a given place, if you've ever seen that happen on a golf course, sometimes they, it completely denudes the golf course of the grass because it happens like that. And so this environment is going to be one where there'll be no other restraints on them. There's going to be no hunting pressure. And so... Uh, this is kind of God establishing some things that are going to be beneficial all the way along uh, as, as now mankind is going to begin to take over the face of this new uh, earth that is going to bud forth with life. We're also going to see the, the beginnings of the covenant with Noah. We'll get to that whole thing next week. But it is here that man becomes omnivorous. So he, he's going to be able to eat both plants and animals. Uh, he, he is also going to be made very aware that this so-called evolutionary tree of life, or the if you're a Disney fan, you know, everything has, the, in essence, the Buddhist uh, ma mantra of the circle of life, that we're all part of one great cosmic consciousness, and there's just a complete cycle, and we're all interconnected, and, you know, in essence, trees and plants and animals are all of one thing, and... That's just simply not true according to the Bible. The Bible says that man is completely, separately, and wholly unique in all of the creation, and only man was created the way man, it was, man is created. Because man has something that no animal life, no plant life has, and that is a spirit, an eternal spirit. And so one of the things that is kind of in view here, when you really look at this whole passage, is that we, we have a tendency now in our modern world, and I hear these types of things all the time, uh, people making a direct equivalence between animal life and human life. And I've actually had people tell me that their dog is the same as someone else's child. And, and while they may have affection for their dog that is very high on the affection meter, in other words, they really love their dog. I happen to love my dogs as well. And if you've ever seen any of my posts on Instagram, you know this is true. Because I let them sleep on my lap and, you know, everything. I'm a softie with that regard. But my dogs are not the same as my children. 
my children have eternal spirits and what they do in this life will have eternal consequences and if they are not redeemed by the blood of the lamb their spirits would perish eternally my dogs do not have that as much as I love my dogs my dogs are animals and they are not eternal otherwise God would have not God's not going to give us the permission to eat things that are going to perish eternally because they also need to be redeemed. He's actually going to allow us to use animals. And I know some people are offended by this very concept, but it is extremely clear in Scripture. And so for people to make a direct equivalence between animal life and mankind is absolutely antithetical to the plain teaching of this particular chapter and how God sees animal life versus mankind. Man is unique. Man alone was created in the image of God. Brings us to the importance of blood. Flesh is now given, in essence, to humankind as something that can be made into a meal. And I know this is people are like, oh, do we have to talk? Yes, we do. Because you're going to hear people say things like, well, I think, you know, there's no difference between a whale and a human being. Or there's no difference between a dolphin and a human being. Or there's no difference between, you know, Sparky the Wonder Dog and a human being. From God's perspective, it's one of the reasons that we treat animal life, in essence, the way God sees it and not the way humankind sees it today. Because we have a tendency, and if you don't believe this is true, Romans chapter 1 actually gives us a picture of this whole, uh, this whole mindset, if you will, uh, when, when you think about it. In verse 21 it says, speaking of unbelievers, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. It says there in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God, which, by the way, was imparted to human life. God gave us his spirit. That's the difference between us and animals. Into the image, like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. In other words, God actually writing through the Apostle Paul said there's going to come a point in time when man is going to do exactly what man has done, and that's trying to tell you that animals are exactly the same as people. God's going to say that's foolishness. That someone who thinks that actually is not thinking correctly from a biblical standpoint. So as Christians... While we honor the fact that we should be kind to animal life, we should care for animal life, we should steward animal life, we should be nice to animal life, you should love on your dogs, take care of your cats. If you've got a, you know, you've got a lemur in your house, take care of your lemur. But your lemur is going to die and go back to the dust of the earth. Your children are going to spend eternity based on their choice of Jesus Christ as Savior, either in heaven or in hell. That is the difference between animals and human beings. 
make no mistake about it as a believer. What God is saying is, look, blood is important for the life of the flesh. Leviticus 17 is in the blood. I've given it to you so that it might go upon the altar, that it might make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The blood is going to be required of innocent animals to to cover my sin, your sin, our sin, in essence, prior to Christ dying on the cross. But it is, in fact, Christ's blood on the cross that actually pays the price for our sin. So even his blood is important. So important that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The price was paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the lifeblood, which is necessary for the chemicals and oxygen to to flow from one part of your body to another, uh, to renew and replenish your your soul or your spirit, uh, its dwelling place, which is this earthly tent that we walk around in, that blood is necessary. So God is going to look at that and he's going to say, look, you can eat animals, but you need to be very careful with their blood because that's the source of life. Be careful. He said, I'm going to accept that, in essence, on the sacrificial altar as a substitutionary atonement for your sin. So you better be really careful about spilling the blood of an animal. Don't do it in vain. You know, somebody once asked me, you know, well, what about trophy hunting and all those kind of things? You know, as, I, as I've gotten older, I've really realized I, I don't see that there is one ounce uh, of reason for us to be taking animal life so that you can hang them on a wall. Now, I know, again, that may offend somebody in here. But because the blood is precious, to spill the animal's life blood so that you can stick its head on your wall to me, I think, goes in this category. I think it's pretty tough to say, yeah, we should do that. So if you're hunting for food, if you're fishing to eat the fish, if you're using it as is properly said here, it's all cool with God. But I think to spill an animal's blood simply to hang its skin on your wall uh, is probably a little bit offensive to God. Because he sees all life, notice what he says, all life is sacred. Animal life and man's life. So the life itself, which is in the blood, should be taken very, very seriously. So if I just messed with your trophy hunting, I apologize. But I think it's pretty clear here. God also institutes capital punishment in this passage. Because the blood represents their life and because they uh, could be eaten, but the blood itself could not be eaten, the animal flesh could be, God was going to accept that. He's basically saying, look, if you spill blood, then you're going to have to forfeit blood. There needs to be a a payment made if you're going to do that. And so notice verse 5, for surely your life blood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I'll require it. From the hand of the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. In other words, he puts into mankind's hand the responsibility to care for every other human being on the planet and also animal life. He says, take it seriously. So when people say, well, you know, I don't believe in capital punishment. Well, God does. Now, it doesn't say that he institutes capital punishment. Matter of fact, the exact opposite 
is fairly clear in Scripture that God often issues grace and God often issues mercy and God often does not require what he could require. Uh, We certainly see that in John's Gospel, which we're studying through. Uh, Here you have a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. That's a capital crime. And Jesus says, it's okay. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. David is a classic example. He is an adulterer and a murderer. And not only does God set him free, but God actually makes him an example of someone who has a heart after his own heart. So God doesn't always require, but the penalty is there. And the penalty is a tremendous discouragement to recklessly and wantonly uh, considering other life less valuable than your own. And sometimes when I, I read through you know, the news wires and, and I look at what's going on, you, you, you can see how this principle has escaped a lot of humankind. You, you look at the, the wanton taking of human life for absolutely zero reason. There's nothing more than they want a couple of dollars in somebody's pocket or, or they no longer want to be burdened by that child in their life and so that child has to die so that the parents can have whatever it is that they think they need. God holds life very precious, and because of that, he says, look, I'm going to require your life. The word require here in the English is actually a Hebrew word that's a judicial term. And what it means is that you will one day appear before a judge, and he's going to ask you some questions, and the answer to those questions are going to have a determining factor in how you were treated after that. In other words, he's going to judge you for it. So if God's going to judge us, I think it would be better for us to judge ourselves first. Amen? That's the way I look at these things. When God gives us a command or he gives us something that he says, this is how I want you to handle this, he's doing so that, so he doesn't have to punish us. God tells us in advance these things so that we can change our behavior to match his requirements. Because he is going to require of man Uh, who spills the blood of another human being or even an animal needlessly, one day you're going to stand before God for that. The other thing that you see in this particular passage is what we call the brotherhood of man or the brotherhood of mankind. Now there's some interesting things and interesting facts and the more that we study human DNA, the more that we figure out we are a whole lot more the same than we are different. Now, when you look around the room, if I were to ask most of you, if you've not studied these things uh, at some level, then you would probably give me some pretty strange answers for the question that I'm about to ask you. If I were to ask you in this room, how much of your DNA do you think is exactly like every other person's DNA in this room? Now, look around the room, and we have a whole lot of nationalities in here, amen? We have a whole lot of races in here, amen? I love it. We, we have a bunch of people who do not look the same. We got different hair colors and different types and body types and different countries of nationality. We were born on different parts of the planet, many of us. We do not look the same. We do not talk the same. We do not walk the same. Some of us are taller. Some of us are shorter. How much of your DNA do you think is exactly like Every other person in this room, and I mean every other person, every last person. Anybody want to shout out a guess? 
99.994% of your DNA is exactly like every other person in this room, regardless of skin color, nationality, place of birth, height, weight, color of hair. So God's actually telling us we're all related. We all came from three people, three sets of brothers and their wives, in essence. Noah was probably in there. We really don't know about Noah. We're not sure at his advanced age, because he's fairly old at this point in time, if he was in the mix. But say it was four families. So you would expect exactly what you see in the world if your Bible is true. And in fact, so much so that that final four-tenths of one-tenth of one percent is usually attributed to things like hair color and eye color, skin color, those types of things. But we are, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same. That's how marvelous God is. And so he made us family in that sense. Every tribe and tongue and nation in God's eyes is family. He does not see us as races, though he loves our individuality, he loves our skin colors, and he loves our languages and all those kind of things. He sees us as a human family. We are literally, in that sense, related brothers and sisters. And by the way, that study was done at Stanford. That study has been published multiple times. It's been repeated several times. And so when you think about the people sitting next to you, that's literally your brother and sister as far as God's concerned. And then once you come to faith in Christ, it's really your brother and sister because it goes from the temporal to the eternal. So not only are we related in the physical, we're actually related by a spiritual birth, so we're all brothers and sisters. That's why it's such an anathema when we do not and cannot get along, when we don't treat each other the way God sees us, which is as brothers and sisters. And so God says, look, I'm going to put upon all of humankind this, in essence, one chief law that values all life. This is the beginning of human government. Because if you think about it for a second, every other single law stems from the one. And that is you have value to God. And thereby, because you're related, you should have value to each other. And so every other law, in essence, is a subset of us caring for the life of each other. That's actually why we don't steal other people's things. That's why we don't take each other's spouses. That's why we don't lie to each other. Because your life is as important as my life. And I am to value your life as much as you should value my life. And if we do that, then all these other laws would actually be unnecessary if we would just do the one law. For those of you familiar with our government, all men were created equal. Amen? Endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, the first of which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
You see, our forefathers actually understood very clearly that we're all related. And in fact, James Madison, the chief author of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, uh, when he was asked about its suitability for other governments and other peoples, he said it's wholly unsuitable for anything other than a Christian nation. Because a Christian nation presumes that every single life is just as valuable as every other life to God. So God institutes, in essence, the one law that kind of trumps all. These men are going to be brothers and sisters. They're also going to be family. They're going to be co-members uh, of, the, of the same town, the same city. And other than, you know, maybe some form of patriarchal government before uh, the, the flood happens, he's basically saying, look, if you guys treat each other as family you'll be fine. If you don't treat each other as family, you're going to have a mess. You'll have chaos. Because that was the condition before the flood. There was total chaos. And when I think about it, it's very simple. And God's going to change and add all kinds of details to this. He's going to go from the very simple to the very complex. And in that sense, as God lays these truths out, the rest of all of our human systems of government, as they flow from this, God actually is going to add additional conditions to it. And by the time we get to the New Testament, the age of grace, he's really going to heap it on us. He's going to say, because you're now children of grace also, not only are you related as human family, but because you're also the recipients of my amazing grace, you should be extra careful with the other laws. In other words, Christians should be the very best citizens that there are on the face of the earth. Because we should understand the very soul of all of this, which is every last person on this planet matters to God. Every person. That's every person that's saved, every person that's not saved, that's every person. That's why we don't have a second set of laws for unbelievers. One of the ways that we can reach people who do not yet know the Lord is by treating them kindly and respectfully and lovingly and tenderly and honoring the fact that God has given every single person value on the face of this earth. I've been in some crazy places. And I will tell you this. Some of the places where I see the love of God deepest is in places that do not have most of what we have here in this country. Because life is very simple, it also is very pure. People actually love one another simply because they are of the human family. It's like, that's my brother, that's my sister. And they treat each other that way. God's going to go on, he's going to give us all of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, and we'll study those things when we get into the book of Exodus. And it will become quite complex. And then, of course, uh, what will happen when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the legalists get a hold of it is they'll add a whole bunch of other things to it. And by the time it's all said and done, they'll take Ten Commandments and turn it into 614 different laws that you get to follow uh, if you want to be kind of sort of right with God. Because that's what mankind does. We take things that are very simple and make it super complex. If you don't believe that, look at our tax code. You, He'd use a copy of that and build a couple of houses out of the trees that were used to print it. 
Hebrews chapter 10 says this regarding to the judgment uh, of evil under grace. You know, sometimes we think, well, you know, it's just grace, grace, grace. It's actually more stringent. Verse 28, Hebrews 10, where anyone who has rejected the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a pretty tough thing. That's the way it was during the, during the time of Moses. If there were two or three witnesses and you were convicted of a crime, you could be put to death. But notice what he says, verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which, was, uh, which, was sanctified a common, by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? In other words... Under grace, we should have an actual greater understanding of the value of other people. We shouldn't have a lesser understanding. It shouldn't make us worse citizens. It should make us better citizens. Because God is going to hold us accountable who have received grace actually in a greater way than those who don't have the grace of God. Without the grace of God, people are in trouble. But because we're not in trouble with God, we should be able to keep ourselves Uh, at least straightened on the laws themselves. Jesus, by the way, is actually going to reiterate this very thing. In Matthew chapter 26, he says there in verse 52, um, all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. So he's actually still reiterating uh, what is said here to to Noah and his family. He says, look, you take a life, it's going to cost yours. But government should also be the dispenser of mercy and grace. So I said David's a, the prime example of that when you really look at it. And instead of dying by the sword or stoning, uh, which he absolutely deserved, First uh, Chronicles tells us there in chapter 29, verse 28, that he died of good old age, full of days and riches and honor. Man, that is the grace of God. Amen? So we always want to keep that in view. You know, sometimes I, I think when we look at God handing down some type of a, of, a, of a dictate like this, where capital punishment is in view, we almost turn there because God said we can do it as if it's the only thing that we can do. And it's not. And that's where I think when we look at our own system of laws and government, we have failed. Because we've resorted to it in in such a way that it's not justified in many cases. And then there are those who do not receive that punishment because on the flip side of that, it's like, no, we're going to just do away with that altogether. So God's really saying, look, dispense grace and mercy. Be kind to people. If people are repentant, give them an opportunity to change. Don't just hold out the law and say, look, it's over for you. The essential point in all of this is that human government is a human responsibility. And sometimes I think that we think God's just going to step in miraculously and by his sovereign hand he's going to change everything in the world. He doesn't do that. He's given us the opportunity to be engaged in our own living of life on this earth. And that's why he tells us these things. He's like, look, you guys need to own this. I've given you, I've given you the ability to live as, as free moral agents once again. I've given you the opportunity to sin or to not sin. I've given you the opportunity to do good or to do bad. Uh, and basically it's up to you now. 
He said, so if you shed blood, you better know this. It might cost you yours. If you take someone else's life, your life may be poured out in their place. So consider the justice of God. Consider what he thinks on the matter. When you think about Jesus, what did he do? He gave his life. Amen? So we're supposed to be on that side of the equation. When we think of how we would handle almost anything with regard to law, we should always put ourselves in the position of, what would I want to do? What would I want to have happen? How would I want to be responded to? What is it that I would want done to me in that situation? In other words, as Jesus, we call it the golden rule. That we ought to do to others that, that which we would have done to our own selves. And so he's saying, look, dispense grace and mercy, be kind to one another, and to make sure that you get these things right. And so there's just a handful of basics here that we can draw from this passage. And you can see all of them in the actions of Jesus, the woman caught in adultery. You can see them in David's life. You can see them throughout scriptures. God just continually says, you could have died in this, but I'm not going to take your life. I'm going to give you mercy. You could have paid the ultimate price, but I'm not going to make you pay the ultimate price. I just want you to learn from this and grow from it and change and turn, and it's going to be fine for you. When we repent, God meets that with mercy. And praise the Lord, he does. Amen? So the basic things of government. Step one, get married, have some babies. Pretty simple. He says, replenish the earth. In order to do that, two shall become one. That all life is precious. God looks at it there in verses, verses 1 and 7 here in chapter 9. All life is precious, must be handled with care. God also gives us a, a picture here that life was intended to be simple. You know, some people ask, well, you know, I don't see how this could have happened, you know, just four and a half thousand years ago. Think about four and a half thousand years ago. Now, I can tell you that in my lifetime, Pastor Jeff's lifetime, the population of the world has doubled. So we went from a little less than 3 billion people when I was born to now near 7 billion people. Okay, so in 60 years and a few, we, we have gone, we have doubled in population. So how many people do you think would be on the face of the earth if mankind had actually been here for, let's say, 1.6 or 7 million years? How many human skeletons do you think would be on the face of the earth if we'd been around for even a few hundred thousand years? Why is it that it would have taken us millions of years to get from Neolithic, Stone Age people, to any type of understanding that we would say is kind of some type of a society, like maybe the medieval times as we know it, to our basic tools and implements? How many people do you think would have been born during that time? If in my lifetime, the world's population has doubled from 3 billion people to almost 7 billion people. How many people do you think would be on the face of this earth if mankind had actually even been here for 50,000 years? I'm pretty sure it'd be a whole lot more than we have right now. 
kind of leads you to believe that we haven't been here that long. It leads you to the conclusion there's not much possibility that mankind has actually been on the face of the earth for perhaps as much as 3.2 million years, but certainly 1.7. If you take some of those early Australopithecus fossils that have been found in the Olduvai Gorge in Kenya, Tanzania. Just saying. Because God gave a command, be fruitful and multiply. People do that pretty readily. Kind of seems like I don't think we've been here that long. And furthermore, where are all the skeletons, all the people that ought to have been here if we've been here for that long? What happened to them? Did they just kind of disappear? Because it seems like all the animals somehow made fossils, but humans didn't. A couple of mysterious questions for you. You can ponder those, which I did for a long time. Look, life is precious. Treat it with care. Life was intended to be simple. At the turn of the century in 1900, there was a actual Sears. How many of you remember the old Sears and Roebuck catalogs? Or the J.C. Penney or Montgomery. Remember the catalogs? Remember those? And everybody, you couldn't wait to get those things. You thumb through. It's like, oh, you didn't even know they had those. You know, now you can just Google it and find. You can get it on Amazon. You can order a house on Amazon now. But back at the turn of the century, Sears and Roebuck did a did a a, a quick study of all of their subscribers of the things that were most important to a human being. At that point in time, in 19, in, I believe it was 1913 that the second study was done, which is the one that was a little more accurate. In 1913, there was a list that was 47 things long that people felt they needed in order to be happy in life. You want to take a guess on how many there was in 1957? There were over 500. You want to take a guess on how many there are today? There's over 2,000. So man has just gone more and more complex and in need of more and more things. And interestingly enough, the happiness meter has gone down in the last 50 years. People are less happy today than they were 50 years ago, even though we have more things. Some of the happiest people I've ever met on the face of the earth are people who have the least amount of stuff. I had a dear friend who served, he's gone home to be with the Lord, but he served in the Sudan for six years. Right on the border, actually, of Uganda and, and southern Sudan, and, and he was talking with some guys, and he was talking about, you know, all, they, they, they all, everybody wanted to come to America. And Chuck asked him, well, why, do you, why do you want to go to America? Well, you have so many things. And I got to thinking about it. And so he said, well, what do you have? And he says, well, I have a... I have a tuple hut. That's those mud huts with a thatched roof on them. And the guy started thinking about it. He says, you know, now that I think about it, I don't want to go to America. He says, because you guys don't own anything. At least I own my mud hut. That's true. We put so much emphasis on stuff, but it doesn't make us happy. And so God makes human government very, very simple. Honor the Lord take care of people. God takes care of us. Jesus codifies that as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, look, consider the lilies of the field. Anybody seen anything that's much more beautiful than that? The answer is no. Consider the sparrows. Do they wander? You ever seen a sparrow sitting on a branch just wringing its hands? 
They don't even have hands. But imagine that they did. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to do to eat today. God didn't intend for us to live underneath that kind of stress. And so here we kind of see a simple life. It's like, look, just take care of other people. I've given you all these things. I've given you plant life. I've given you animal life. You've got plenty of food. Eat what you need and leave the rest of it to me. And the third thing is just to protect all life, to be stewards of the earth. You know, we haven't done a great job of that, amen? I, I wander around the earth. It's like, mm, no, we messed that up. We junked that up. We trashed that. We polluted that. Now, I've had to have the privilege of being just old enough to remember back when the smog was actually worse than it is today. Some of us in this room, you can remember when we used to have that thick layer of that brown, gnarly stuff and your lungs would burn and it was ugly. But the fact of the matter is we haven't cared for what God's given us all that well. And all of that is to protect us. It's here for our enjoyment. We're supposed to take care of it. Because if we do, it will actually take care of us. And so what we'll see as all this unfolds is three things that God will ordain, three institutions on this earth. He institutes uh, here in Genesis, heterosexual, nuclear family, marriage. He says, look, there's a man and there's a woman and they're supposed to have children. Uh, Here he institutes human government, the brotherhood of mankind. We should take care of one another, value all human life. And by the time we get to the Gospels, he implements the church. And those three things... If we will honor those three things and do those three things the way God intends, we're going to be fine. But when we don't, you destroy the nuclear family, which now unfortunately in most of the world, that is, that is largely the case. Families out the window. People are not having children. People don't even marry in the first place. If you take human government and you make it into something super complex to where it does functions and things that God never intended, it becomes burdensome. It becomes cumbersome and you start feeding it, which is what's happened here in America, right? We, we now pay a, the largest percentage of our taxes. You may not know this, but the largest percentage of your tax dollars actually go to the function of our government. You derive nothing from them. They just take care of the government itself. They don't come back to you. They don't come back in the form of medical benefits or any of those types of things. They just keep the government itself running. In fact, it's about 68% now. Of every dollar that you send into the federal government, they spend on making sure the government runs. It doesn't come back as a new highway. It doesn't come back as a new medical facility. It doesn't come back as help to people who are in need of help because they're poor. We just made this gigantic complex thing. God made it actually pretty simple. Just value all human life. Imagine if that was the only function of government. Value all human life and take care of human life. So when you send in money to the government, it actually took care of the needs of human beings. That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? Instead of what we do now, which is make more laws and figure out other ways to tax us and all those crazy things that government does now. And then church. Church is where we meet with God. God meets with us, generally speaking. But it's also part of our human family. 
It's the extension of our spiritual side. In other words, as God's made us in his image, our spirit meets with his spirit, meets there in that, in that realm, and that is fostered by the church itself. And so God ordains these institutions on earth, and we would do really well to heed those institutions and make sure that they prosper going forward if we want to stay on this earth much longer. Now, I know, realize many of you don't want to. Um, so, you know, you can take a look at your life and say, well, I think I'll just not pray that way. But for the sake of others, pray for everybody else that we would see them as our brothers and sisters and treat them as such. Pray for every family that they would raise their children, the training and the admonition of the Lord, that when they get old, to not depart from those things that they've learned from God and that people would get engaged in part of being part of the body of Christ uh, because it's there that we receive that instruction and the things that are of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's stand. I think Sarah and John are coming back up. Yep. Father God, we thank you for the simplicity of how you saw human government. And, and Lord, we ask that you'd help us to institute a change in our own nation, Lord, in our own families, our own communities, uh, for the better, that we would value all human life. We are actually uh, very much related one to another, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Lord, we're attached. We're, we're in one giant family as far as you're concerned. And Lord, we've messed that up, and we just confess that to you and pray that you'd help us to be kind and gentle and humble and meek towards each other. God, you'd bless us to that end. And Father, we pray that you'd give us the proper respect for each other, proper care for each other, proper concerns for each other. Lord, that we would see each other the way you see us. Help us to honor your name in these things, Lord. We bless you, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen.